Well, here we are. It's another week of life in the peloton and I've got a great episode coming up. It's a bit of a mailbag, but it's a semi-slash talking to a good friend of mine, Tom Southern. Welcome, Lionel. Great to talk to you again on Life in the Peloton. How are you, mate? I'm good, thanks, Mitch. Yeah, I've just finished our Giro over on the Cycling Podcast. Myself, Richard Moore and Daniel Freeb produced 23 podcasts in 23 days. Pretty much standard Grand Tour coverage for us. But without a race going on, we had to um, we had to be a little bit creative and tell some stories from the Giro's past, the distant past, and also the most recent past. And in the midst of that, Mitch, your episode fitted absolutely perfectly with everything we were putting out because uh, if your listeners haven't already caught up on your last episode of Life in the Peloton, I would urge them to go back and listen to the last one. It told the story of the team time trial, the build-up to the team time trial in Belfast in 2014 for the Orica Green Edge team, which you, of course, Mitch, were part of, and you won the team time trial that day. And the episode, I mean, the feedback we've had from the listeners who have tuned into it has been absolutely uh, amazing. I've been so pleased to see that people loved the way that uh, you spoke to your ex-teammates and the way that our producer Will Jones put the episode together it's a real ensemble piece that tells the story of a, a memorable weekend for the team yeah I tell you what I was a driving force in that team's time trial and we get to hear about all the riders and it's, it's, it's just a great thing one thing I noticed with that time trial is well that whole Giro every time I see those guys and for the years after that was the one Giro or the one race that we always spoke about and that's why it just came to me straight up. I need to get the guys to talk about this Giro. It's the one memory that we always talk about. The team's time trial, but that whole race. So much happened. So if you haven't heard it, you've got to go back and listen to this. This is an awesome podcast. I loved recording it. You know, there was about six or eight hours of recording in it. And Will was able to punch it down to about an hour's worth of podcasts. So he did an amazing job. I hope you had a good time listening through all the extra stuff because it was fantastic. But this week, we've gone back a step and we've gone, you know what, what do you guys want to hear about? And we've sent out the mailbag. You guys have sent the questions in. I've spoken to a good friend of mine who's now my director, Tom Southern. He's a director at EF Education First. Sit back and enjoy this one. Your questions are out there. We've answered them or we've tried our best to answer them. So really enjoy this one, guys. All right, here we go. We've got a special podcast today. I'm talking to ex-teammate, longtime friend, now my director, still friend, Tom Southern. Welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, man. Pleasure to be here. Well, if anyone doesn't know who Tom is, I've got it, I've done a little bit of background on him because there's a little bit of stuff I actually didn't know about Tom. You know, look, he was he was a pro back in 2003. He started his career in Italy with Moro Vita, then moved on to a um, little South African team. Was it South African then? Uh, the first year, I mean, yeah, the first year was registered in South Africa. The second year was registered in the UK, but the sponsor was always South African. We're talking about Barlow World now. And Froomey was on the team then too, wasn't he? Uh, he came after me. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I right. Think they, think, they made, think they made a good change there. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was a great team. Tom then decided to pause cycling and just went back to Australia. And then that's when we met. Trapback yep. Porsche development team. 
and he gave us a bit of experience. I always remember our first meeting there and I was just like, who the hell is this guy? Like I was feeling like I was a bit of top notch there and I was like, I just didn't know who you were. I didn't really know the the pro overseas pro scene apart from, you know, the cream of the crop. And I remember you came on and you just had this really cool sort of laid back attitude. And I was like, ah, this guy's no good. And then all of a sudden we got into racing. I was like, oh, right. This guy knows his stuff, you know? So um, that's where Tom came across to Drapak. And then actually you stopped Drapak then and then went back to the UK because you're from the UK, Cornwall. Yep. Penzance down in Cornwall, all the way down the end. (laughs) And then went back to the UK and started racing with, and this was a curveball for me, Team <laughs> Team Halford's Bike Hut. Tell me about that. It was a woman's team, actually, I think, principally. It was like Bike Hut, uh, Halford's, it's, like, it's, it's a big chain of bike stores in the UK uh, and, and car parts. So, yeah, I guess it's kind of like Bunnings for Bikes in the UK. And they wanted to they put some money into a team. They wanted to sponsor Nicole Cook. Who they sponsored and then they also took on two men um, one was myself and one was Rob Hales who won the national road race championships that year and uh, it was actually like one of my favorite years on the bike um, because we'd been I mean I, I'd been in Europe and you know racing in Italy for years and France before that and Holland before that and Rob had been away and he'd um, done the track thing and he'd uh, been at Cofidis for a few years we both came to this sort of odd setup where you know we had uh, the bikes were off the shop floor from like your 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 bargain sort of basement ride to work bikes so they were like cost a thousand pounds or something for these bikes we had i mean they were (laughs) they were basic we just both had this great year where we had this attitude of like let's just go and race our bikes you know we took ourselves to kermesses in belgium you know we did the racing in the uk and we just like i think we went to belgium one week for kermesses and we did like four or five races and we were never like we're either first or second one of us, like the whole time. Just that like really good vibe when you just, it's just working, you know? And at the same moment, we were up till two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, having like late dinners and plenty of wine and like Rob likes his good food and drinks. And, you know, it was, it was a great year. It was a fun year. And then Rob obviously um, ended up winning the nationals. We were both in the break that year. And uh, yeah, that was, that, that, was a, that was a pretty special day. He won the nationals in the, in, when he was riding for Bike Hut. Yep, 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 on the £1,000 bike, yeah. It was a five-man break in the end, two of us in it, and uh, I rode, and then he uh, finished it off. You're kidding me. I did not know that. That is amazing. Yeah, it was pretty <laughs> cool. So then I wanted to talk about your career, so to set up who you really are. On from there, you went to Rafa Condor, and that was, a, that was the first year of Rafa, wasn't it? Rafa Condor, the team, in 2009, and you were there for a couple of years. Was that so, team around before that? It was, I think the, the team started in, it started as a Conti team, I think, in 2008. But so, so, that, so that team was run by John Herity, who was, who looked after me from basically 18 to, to 23 on the world-class performance program, which is what you'd, I guess you'd call the academy now. And uh, I mean, that, that, that was always a natural choice for me to go and race for John. I also met um, Simon Mottram from Rafa in way back in 2005. I went to visit them in, in London when they had a tiny little 
a sort of one uh, one room office um, in London. They were starting up this brand that was going to be a bit different. And like I went in and they had some like amazing imagery of Fausto Coppi and these beautiful. I just I think they just had a jersey at the time, a jersey and a pair of gloves or some armors or something. And so there was a kind of connection there. And then uh, yeah, after the Halfords year, that was a that was my sort of natural fit for me. I think I spent three years there as a rider. It, it was what I was looking for because I think like when I went to, when I went to Europe and when I was in bigger teams in Europe, like I, I really enjoy being part of a team where people get on and you, like you kind of make things better um, by the good atmosphere around you. And in I mean in Barlow World, I had none of that in the in the, in the second the second year. I, I really I remember going to races and sharing rooms with guys who I didn't know, who I didn't, like, you know, I got on a plane and landed uh, in Portugal or wherever and went to a hotel room and sat next to this guy who had done the same thing and I had nothing in common. There was no, you know, no common ground there. So going to Rafa Condor was basically just like going and getting to race your bike and being with some really good mates, which, which I really loved. Yeah, because what I what I understand and what I'm sort of trying to build towards is you've you've had a lot of experience throughout your career and you've raced in all types of levels. You've also got a master's degree in professional riding. You've written a book, Domestique, um, with your ex teammate Charlie Wigelius or former pro teammate. And you've you've raced, like I said, all these different styles of team. Drapak Porsche was very amateur. And then, you know, like you just said about, you know, bike hut was also a very different setup. Rafa Connor, another setup. You've been, you know, at at Barlow World, and and maybe you didn't know it. It was just like almost the perfect sort of building blocks to where you are now as a director. And that's what I see as a director sportive, someone who runs a team who has a whole wealth of knowledge of different scenarios. You're not just like pigeonholed in a world tour team from day one to day, to day dot. You've got to experience everyone's level, and I see you as a really experienced director who understands all those levels and just when I looked at your career and I was like huh that's why um do you sort of see that as a as a working progress to where you are now and without even knowing that's how it was and you were just sort of searching for what you know what what you really wanted and what made you happy yeah I mean it's it's funny I think I heard, I think it was Adam Hansen the other day on the podcast it's basically like you're never the finished article as a rider and I don't think you're ever the finished article as a as a sports director either. I think I'm still evolving. But sort of like g- going back, I, I never thought I'd be a sports director. So, so it was never with the intention of doing it. But I mean, I started racing. So I, after I finished my GCSEs, so exams you do at 16, so the VCE for you, basically. Like, like I went to Holland for three months to go and race for a Dutch team when I was 16 years old. All I wanted to do was race. And I did it like in a, in a lot of different places, a lot of different countries. I mean, I was amateur in France for two years, in Holland and Belgium for one year. And like all of those elements kind of taught me something. And it's only now that like I am where I am that I look back and kind of, I mean, try and take the things that I did learn. Um, I mean, the first thing I did when I got a job as a sports director was just write a list of who was a good sports director I had and who was a bad one and what the things were that I liked or didn't like about them. And then that's when I saw the sort of like, like, like what you're talking about, this different patchwork of all these people and influences that you kind of go, okay, well, I can take from this and that. And- well, let me, let me run through that little transition there quickly because after 2011, you decided to call it a day and you ended up working for Rafa, from what I understand, because we were met over in Tura Britain at that point, 
And I always remember this, you're like, look, I'm just sort of doing some stuff with some some press officer or I'm not too sure what I'm going to do. And that's sort of, from what I could see from the outside, you can tell the story better than I. It evolved into being a sports director at Rafa, sort of getting your feet a little bit wet there, where you then went to, you know, Drapak, back to Drapak in Australia and went full-time as a sports director. And that team there was building up. Their idea was to go across and race in Europe. And I think... As a sports director, it was actually a perfect sort of fit. It wasn't huge, but it was a nice next step. And people were willing to give you confidence. You were able to make decisions where they weren't like world tour big decisions, but they still had a bit of weight. And then finally, Drapak merged with Cannondale. You came across with that merger and that's where you are now. Run me through a little bit of that that sort of transition from being a pro or uh, finishing cycling to becoming a sports director, which you said wasn't something you thought it sort of just happened maybe yeah i mean like firstly i would say i think i was super lucky with um like 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 with john herity um because i think that in his own way john gave me the space because the, the first year i came to refer I, I raced quite hard the second year i had a crash and i broke my elbow and i was out for a long time and that's when i started studying my masters and john gave me a lot of space to kind of like what, what once it became obvious I wasn't going to race any longer to sort of take up a role in the team. He always wanted me to be a, to sort of do a bit more sort of sports directing and I, I didn't want to do it. So I said, no, I'll be the press officer. And he's like, okay. And I mean, I mean, Rafa Kondo had a press officer and I mean, it was a Conti team. Like, who does that? But he, he did. And then I did, I did, I did some races and... <laughs> what did you actually do? What did you actually do? Uh, I, I don't even know, man. I just wrote some, <laughs> wrote some race reports and, you know... Um, but but it, but it was really good, and yeah. eventually, eventually, he twisted my arm and said, sent me off to Korea to go and do a race in Korea, and uh, we ended up my first race winning the Tour of Korea um, overall, and it was quite cool. We f- we finished with two riders, right, and my only regret was that one of the riders I asked him to abandon on the last stage, like maybe a kilometer to go or something, like when it was safe. So then we could say we had a hundred percent record. We finished the race with one rider. Um, I think I think we just lost a rider every day because I just got the guys so g'd up to race that like every day they were just exhausted. I mean they were nineteen, twenty year old kids. But then we had like a really nice, like a, a good team. John had done all the work in the background, and he was sending me off to races with Tim Kenyak, who was with us um, the last couple of years now with Bahrain. Um, James Griffin, who was with the team with with us for a while, Rob Palmer, like like really good guys. And we had a nice thing going and we were going over to these races in Japan and Korea and stuff. And um, it was really successful. We won the next year tour career again with Hugh Carthy, who was 19 at the time, three stage wins. And like from there, I just kind of like got a bit more confidence. We got a, an invite to a tour of Colorado uh, or US Pro Challenge. And that's where I ran into the Drapak guys. Uh, Darren Lapthorne, who's you know a mutual friend of both of ours, and he he said that there was you know potentially an opportunity with Drapak to be a full time sort of sports director, and it kind of it just it just it just led as as to me it was like the next step, um, and I was really fortunate that I got that opportunity to go there, like you said, and and make kind of the mistakes you have to make before um, before being at the highest level, because I mean without a background as you know uh, a world tour like a top world tour pro it's hard to have that credibility you have to just learn learn the steps on the way up and i mean i, I look back now at myself when i started at drapak and some of the, you know some of the decisions you made some of the things you did and you're just like man 
what were you doing? But it, it was really good for me. It, it, like it, it, it taught me a lot and it taught me what I could and couldn't do and shouldn't, shouldn't be doing. And as soon as I got there, like it was obvious they were ambitious. Like Michael was at the time, Michael Drapak was super ambitious and he, and he really, really wanted to, you know, get there. And the year we, the, the year we went to Europe, I was really into like this vision of just growing into like a legitimate pro Conti team because, you know, it, it's one thing to get the pro Conti license. It's another thing to be that like legitimate, you know, you turn, you look and you go, you know, like Wanty, like a, they're a legitimate pro Conti team and they get the invites. And it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough place to be because the politics of the sport and getting into races and coming from outside of Europe and stuff. And I think, you know, Michael made the decision and it all went together with Canada, which brought me here, but brought me here at the right time of my sort of career. Yeah, it was it was the natural next step. You like you said, you were you were learning your ropes, and you. I'm not going to say you were comfortable, but like the next step to keep growing was all right. Let's go for the big league. Um, all right, well, great. I'm glad that that sort of filled the the gap for everyone out there to understand a little bit what a sports director is, and we might refer to it as DS throughout this now. So, um, or director sportive. Sorry. I've got a whole bunch of questions. This is actually a slash mailbag today. So we've got some questions. Everyone sent their questions in. There's some cracking ones there. Um, And I just thought I would start with my own question at the top of the mailbag, just to give everyone a bit, again, a bit more of a format of what you do. We pretty much know what a day-to-day life is as a writer, but something I always find interesting is we think we know what a sports director does, like as writers. And I always love talking to you and especially writers who just transfer across, you know, um, and they come back and go, oh, you guys have got no idea what we have to do now. On that light, run me through briefly a day in the life of a sports director. You know, let's just run me through what, what, a, what a typical day is, uh, race day. Yeah, I mean, so firstly, before we go to the race, we do a lot of homework. Like there's a lot of work done at home um, to make our lives a little bit easier on the race because once you're in the race and things are moving, it's exhausting. So before anything, I try and, I try and get a good night's sleep. That makes a huge difference. It's, it's kind of the old idea of like the sports directors sit in the bar and drink beers and whatever, but like you, I, you just can't really do it anymore because the job's pretty intense. So get some sleep and then get up early and then first thing is generally double checking the wind. Is, is, is what we've thought, right? Is, is this going to be, you know, uh, the way things are going to go today? And then, you know, then you can go to breakfast and think about whether or not anything has to change. We normally have a few sports directors at a race and we generally tend to meet after breakfast. So might, uh, you know, if it's nice weather, might go for a walk for 10 minutes um, and discuss the day and make sure like we've, we've, we all agree on the plan of the day or, you know, sit at the table or whatever or go to someone's room and go through the day and then basically probably I would say at some point just double check the the race manual to make sure that uh, there's no mistakes in the start time which is just like you know yeah that high school the dream you have at school of forgetting to put your pants on or whatever check the traffic on the way to the start of the race make sure there's no road closures um uh, and then basically head to the you know get down to the bus um, and then we might have another meeting to go through the actual presentation for the day, whichever one of us is going to do. So all the rest of the sports directors are really clear on the slides that are going to be seen and 
that kind of thing. Just to pause, just to pause you there, this is something, and I know you would know this for sure because I've seen the change in my career, but you were racing before I started racing. This is something that's evolved heavily over my career, the presentation. I love how you refer to it as a presentation. It used to be the brief or you know, maybe open up your book if you had time. Now it's like a full-on thing. And like you just mentioned then, there's a pre-meeting to make sure the presentation for the writers is correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's like you can get quite – you can go too far with it and you can spend too much time working on a nice PowerPoint when, you know, sometimes like the most effective message is really simple. Like 50 minimum – like you want to try and keep it under 50, 60 slides, don't you? Yeah, you know, just like under 45 to 48 <laughs> minutes, you know. <laughs> No, I mean, you, you need to keep it simple, but it, it generally is clear at least because we've also got guys with different languages, right? So, and then, you know, like once we get to the race, um, we, we do the meeting, get that message across. In that moment, we just need to make sure that everybody gets off the bus knowing with a clear idea what's going to happen, you know, or, or what the plan is uh, and what they do for the day. Um, maybe you have to have an extra word with someone or just to make sure it's really clear, but generally you try and avoid, you know, running around between individuals, adding little extra bits of this and that, because then you're just confusing the message. So once that's done, then it's kind of like this odd, you've got an hour to wait for the start and get your car ready and uh, go and chat some sort of BS with the mechanic or whatever. Um, Have you got like a typical thing now? Because that sounds like it's limbo land. And there would have been, for me, I'm just imagining I'd be going, you know what, I need to find something to do in this limbo time. Have you got something um, that you do? It's the worst, you know, like sometimes you go outside and you have that minute when you're like, lean back on the bonnet, like, ah, nah, not comfortable here, not going to stand here. I'll go and lean against the bus. Ah, nah, not going to be here. Because all the riders are getting changed in the bus and like the music's on and you try and keep everybody out of there. Nobody wants you there sort of messing around with a coffee machine, you know. And so you just sort of kind of, fold your arms and stand around or go and sit in the car and it's 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 it's, it's a horrible <laughs> i hate that time man because <laughs> um, i can imagine it's one of those situations where you can't just go you know what i'm just gonna like do something constructive but it looks like then you don't care so you gotta do absolutely. like this half sort of limbo land <laughs> yeah or, or or on the flip side you know like you could just go to a, a cafe where you can see the bus and if anybody needs you they can grab you and you could sit down but then everyone's going to be like what the hell is RDS doing? He's just like sat over there having an affogato. Like, what the hell? Um, and then obviously like once the race gets going, that's four or five hours. And honestly, I mean, when you get out the car at the end of that, you are toasted. It's, it's exhausting mentally. It really is draining. And then immediately after the race, we debrief with everyone, try and get, try and get that finished as quickly as possible, what we have to get through, you know, um, any difficult things, anything that's come up. Um, so we can get back to the hotel and everything's sort of finished and the guys can have dinner together in a in a calm way and be, you know, be a team again. I sort of try not to go into the riders' rooms too much after the race because they don't necessarily want to be thinking about the race. So then, you know, if you go and check on the staff, the mechanics, any problems with the bikes, bits and pieces, um, and then uh, start doing it all again. So it's, you know, they're busy days. I mean, when I get back from... A grand tour, I basically, every time I sit down, I fall asleep, you know. You get home and, like, even though you haven't turned a pedal or whatever, um, I get on the couch and just basically fall asleep. It's, 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 it's tiring. I think that's one thing that's definitely, yeah, underestimated is as a rider, 
you have busy days as well, but there's periods where you get to switch off. But for you guys, those times that you switch off, they're sort of like we said, they're limbo land. So you're not really switching off. You're like waiting outside of a bus or, you know, whatever, driving a car back to the, the hotel. So you don't really ever get that time to yourself. So it is it is taxing in a different kind of way. Shoot that arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's the voice of Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour at the Tour de France, of course, the man who the sports directors hear relaying those messages throughout the race. And he's interrupting Mitch Docker's conversation with Tom Southern to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Beer 52. Now, if you're in the UK, you can get a free case of eight craft beers sourced and curated from some of the best breweries on the planet delivered to your door for just the cost of postage, which is £5.95. Go to beer52.com slash cycle each case is delivered to your doorstep so you don't need to leave the house uh, if you're looking to stock up on a few beers for the summer then join the club beer 52 is the world's most popular craft beer discovery club there are over 150,000 members and each month each member gets a brand new case of beers to discover and there's a different theme each month if dark beer is not your thing, you can simply choose lighter options and your case will come with an award-winning beer magazine, Ferment, and a tasty snack. Now, in my case this month, I got a bottle of Mosaic IPA by Black's Brewery, who are in Cork in Ireland. And although it's a darkish beer, uh, it goes very well with these warm temperatures at the moment because it's light, it's fresh, it's slightly fruity. There's a, a hint of citrus in there and it really goes very well with uh, you know sitting down to listen to a podcast as the sun goes down. So if you would like to uh, sample what Beer 52 has to offer and perhaps join the club, go to beer52.com slash cycle to get your first case of eight beers for just £5.95. That's beer52.com slash cycle. Now let's get back to Mitch's conversation with Tom Southern. Cheers. Let's crack into these questions. Um, mine was a bit of a long one, but thanks, Tom. That sets it up. Um, look, I think Rory, Rory's first off the bat today. He's more or less asked a question. Moving from competitive cycling, uh, competitive racing to a DS, what does that look like? I think we've more or less covered that. I mean, no, there's one thing I would add to that is that basically, you know, like when you get into your bed at night in a race, your body's exhausted, right? It's, it's knackered and you've done your job and your mind's empty. When you transition to a DS, you get into bed at night and your body's done nothing, but your mind is exhausted, like fried. And so the transition between being a racer and being a DS is like the really hard thing. And I know like um, there's, 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 there's strong rumours that our new DS was falling asleep in the car at the, uh, at, at, not, not while driving, um, while he was doing his trials last year at the Welter. So it's just the switch from your, your physical exhaustion to mental fatigue. Well, on the on the back of that, what physical exercise can you do? Because it sounds like I imagine, I've always imagined this year, I'll just go running and, you know, do this, do that. It sounds like it's pretty hard to fit that in. Yeah, I mean, there's a small window um, sort of generally. I mean, some, some guys get up super early and go and do stuff. I, I don't like to do that, just get out of bed at five and go. But there's a small window sort of when we, immediately when you get back. 
if there's somebody else there who's like, let's go for a run, which is like at the Tour de Andreas is always like, right, let's go. Then we just go and we run 5Ks or something just for the little bit of mental me- mental space. Um, and you run slowly and it doesn't actually matter or whatever. It's, it's just about clearing your head a bit. All right. How does it differ being a DS for the Classics versus a Grand Tour? That one, sorry, is from Wespa. So I think... In terms of the actual job in the car, like when you do the classics, like I do the Ardennes, so I do um, Amstel Flesh Liège. So you get gaps between and we stay in one hotel. And so it's like focus, race, and then recover, basically. Whereas the hard thing at a Grand Tour is, is all the moving, you know? Because when you finish, uh, when you finish a stage, you might have two hours in the bus or three hours in the bus where you're not recovering or you can't really work, you know. You try and look at your laptop in the back of a moving bus in, you know, July in the middle of France, going down a mountainside, you're not, you're not doing anything. So you lose a lot of time in, in Grand Tours just moving from A to B. And I think that is is the build-up fatigue of just losing time constantly that makes the Grand Tours... Does that, the, does, does that mean the setup before a Grand Tour is larger? I'm not saying that you don't do as much work for a classic. It is one day, so it's different again. But what I'm imagining there is preparing for a Grand Tour is huge because you're like, I more or less have to have this thing ready to roll, 21 stages when I get there. And all I'm doing is fine-tuning a little bit each night. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to be looking at, you know, the race route apart from just refreshing yourself midway through a Grand Tour. You want to know it and have done the work already. Whereas a classic, you can have all that. You've got it right there, you know. Also, a Grand Tour changes a lot more so i mean amstel gold race apart from a few minor changes to the final you know like it's going to be like last year in terms of the route and you double check and you make sure there's no big differences you know liege there's a few minor tweaks flesh changes a bit more often but the finish circuit's the same whereas a grand tour you've got a lot of a lot of homework to do you just practically opening up the race manual like all right stage six done now where are we for stage seven let's have a look at this thing 10 o'clock at night here we go. Yeah, I mean, ah, this is the Gyro d'Italia, right. <laughs> All right, Kenny, what is the worst part of the job when working on a stage race? Um, it's just, again, uh, it, it's, it's the physical toll of sitting in a car for six hours trying to do your job. Like, because you, the more stressed you get, I think the more you sort of tend to scrunch up. And sort of like the first time I did the Grand Tour, like at the end of it, I was just a hunched up person because I was just like bent over a steering wheel with my knuckles sort of going white from stress and tension. And it has it has a real physical toll. Um, and so I find looking after yourself is, is, is hard. This is a two-part question. What is more useful as a director? Being psycho- psychologically well-tuned or having ridden, say, 15 Grand Tours? So... Yeah, being understanding the psychology of the riders or actually having experience from riding. What do you think? Uh, well, I mean, I can't speak for having done 15 Grand Tours, but uh, I mean, it, it depends what you take from it, doesn't it? I think being psychologically well attuned to the riders has more value than having... Um, you, you could get that from doing 15 Grand Tours because you might be a smart bloke who works those things out but just that on its own isn't really it's such a small component of the job because as well as the riders there's the staff right so you might be able to communicate with a rider about a climb or a part of the race but you also have 25 28 people who you have to manage 
and and not knowing how to do that can be quite taxing. So I guess also the the biggest part there I was thinking about is. 15 grand tours in your time and 15 grand tours now are completely different things and you've got to continually evolve. I think even thinking about a guy like Andreas Clear, the way he raced the classics, he's an amazing director in the classics, but he's evolved to the way we race now. He understands Mm. it and he learns it. And that experience he had from racing, yes, it helps him, but I think it's getting less and less and less. And he's just got more experience from understanding what the racing is now. And like you said, managing the riders, managing the staff and psychologically understanding what is needed. I think that's the biggest element. And to a degree, if you can say you're somewhat of an amateur rider DS, not coming from 15 Grand Tours, but you still make a really good DS. That's your proof of the pudding is that it's not all about how many races you've done or what races or how many races you won. It's the old saying, like the best, you know, in a junior team, the best player is the captain. That's not true because you've got to learn from all those experiences, I would think, anyway. Uh, 100% agree. I think, uh, yeah. All right, next one. Koaza is saying this question. I've read that completely wrong. How does a tour team structure their workload each day? So, I mean, from, from, from a DS part, from, from what we do, if I give you an example, at the tour, we have three DSs. So um, one of us basically takes responsibility for all of the logistics, which vehicles are going where, who's going to stand on what mountain with bottles and wheels, and um, which soigneur is going to be at the finish, whether we're going to park the bus at the bottom of the climb or at the top of the climb, if, we, if we've got any sort of changes, how far it's going to be to the hotel, who's going to go to the hotel, and managing all that sort of staff and logistics side. So that's one job in itself. Um, and that person then also drives the second car, which you know covers breakaways or the gruppetto, depending on what's happening. Um, and then you have another DS who can do avant course, so going in front of the race by 20 minutes um, and reporting back sort of live weather conditions as they go. And then obviously another DS in what we call you know car one, which is the sort of brains of the tactical operation of the race and they all support each other that's how we sort of spread the work as 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 ds's david how do you as a ds or road captain deal with inter team rivalries are there any big rivalries in particular Hmm, good one i mean from my side like we're trying to use every other team to do to do the work for us and and so is everybody else um, and I think, you know, from time to time you see things in one race, you might, things might, there might be two teams that are close fighting for the same thing. And it feels like there's a bit of a rivalry, but I mean, maybe that's one more for you, Rich, you know? I guess I try and take the psychological tact, whether that is verbal and not get into the, like the front on like verbal fight, but you can just sort of sometimes, whether it's, you know, a simple thing like. Hey, you, you boys look pretty strong there, you know, you know, like, or something like that. Hey, you guys, you guys going to put, oh, I saw you guys put one up there, you know, like it's just sort of that, if there's that rivalry there, you got to sort of start playing the head games if you can, without it getting sort of personal and things kicking off, you know, or um, you're just trying to find out what they're up to and you're just trying to play it sort of smart if you can without, without it turning into a, a big biffo. Um, that's the, that's the tact I would sort of go for. 
So you're basically the uh, Australian wicketkeeper of the situation, Mitch. I was an ex-wicketkeeper, so yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> exactly that, you know, like you just sort of just, you're just there, you know, like just letting you know that we're here and we're, we're pretty good too. Um, well, the pocket egg sent in a question. Any advice for amateur racers looking to provide DS-like support to teammates without a radio? Yeah, I think it's pretty simple. I mean, radio or no radio, the game is always the same. You work out the demands of the race. You work out who you have in your team. You make a plan between, between you and your guys and you agree on the best way to win the race. And then you make the guys that are racing um, accountable for that happening. And, uh, you know, I think in a, in a really, really good, highly functioning team, you almost don't have to say a word. Like after, after you've said, this is how we're doing it, the rest should all, everyone should understand what's going on. And, and that doesn't, you don't need a radio to do that. What you need is, is, is a clear idea, a belief in how you can do it. And that's, you know, anybody can have that at any level, really. Um, and the right chemistry with with the team, um, and then if if you, if you want to be the DS, you have to be the person who sort of says, "All right, lads, this is the way we're going," and get everybody to jump on board with that. And then if if you do that, that's it. Yeah, yeah exactly. And you deal with the consequences afterwards in terms of someone needs to make the plan. We all need to get on board, and nine times out of ten, that plan will work because you've made a concrete decision. Let's go that way. And you know, those other times it doesn't. You go, "Cool, let's assess what happens." and Rather than being, you know, there's nothing worse than having that wishy-washy plan. I think that could happen. Maybe we'll try that. Maybe that. And then next thing you know, nothing happens. I think that's good. Next one. This is from Glenn. How do you decide who is best to support a GC rider? Um, I mean, this all comes down to the sort of um, the the variables of of the race course, um, the demands of the race how sort of well positioned our GC rider would be in terms of whether or not we expect to have to pull for them at any point. Um, you know, you might have a, you might have a tour when, you know, it's going to be crosswindy for the first sort of four or five days. Okay. We need guys for the crosswind. How many guys do we need? Who's good at that? Who's in the right shape? And basically sort of getting, I mean, there's different types of riders and we just have to work out who's going to fill those positions and and how many of which one you need and that's all based on the on the course and who who the gc rider is you know i mean there's a lot that goes into that it's, it's actually a, a big old <laughs> question nice pom de terra to us watching the tv at times it looks like multitasking mayhem in the ds car how do you do it i mean that's one yeah it's it's basically like trying to watch the tv and listen to the radio and listen to a record at the same time there's a lot of information coming in and what you have to do is just focus on what the most important information is. I mean, there's also all the stuff of the convoy and the cars flying around. Um, that becomes second nature the more you do it. And you realise as soon as you drive in a convoy that everybody's on the same page. Driving is, is less, it's less chaotic than you think because every, every driver is sort of following the same path. Nobody wants to get in the way of a rider everybody's doing the same job so generally that's kind of takes care of itself and then it's just basically processing the information that's hard so if race radio is talking for example we get it when um a break will go and race radio there's a delay and then they'll start telling me in the car which numbers there are and a rider might start talking on the radio it's when you have to like the guys have to shut up because we miss the numbers and then we don't know who's in the break and who the right guy is and 
that can be a really frustrating moment. So sometimes you have to preempt that and say, guys, no talking until we give you the numbers and just trying to keep things really clear. And generally in the car, when those moments happen, the mechanics good in the back, they're listening to the radio as well. They're helping. And, and most guys get it. You know, I think we had a couple of <laughs> incidences this January where there were people having conversations uh, when we were for race numbers. But uh, yeah, it does happen. Like, and as riders too, like on the flip side, it's just like when too many riders talk, um, it can get quite annoying. And also I often find, I don't know what it is, but it must get boring when we're on a climb because obviously the pace slows down and it's less hectic. There's no riders back there, whatever. So I get the feeling it's a great time for DS is just to relay like some useless knowledge or some knowledge that you just don't need at like threshold on a climb. But you often get that in. It's like, by the way, boys, just talk, just looking at that finishing circuit. Um, now there is three corners there. Two of those corners are not, and you're just like, Either tell me how many K to go and the percentage on this climb or shut up. Yeah, because you're at a threshold. So it's it's quite funny. Um, the radio is quite a funny thing. I've always wondered, is it hard to understand the different riders? I mean, I reckon I reckon you get 50% of the time you get what people are actually saying. Because, I mean, firstly, so, so some guys just aren't clear. Secondly, you know, as soon as it's a cold day and guys have got three, four jackets on, it gets really muffled. People generally tend to speak when they're panicking. They don't talk in a calm voice. And there's only so many times you want to say, I did not copy that because everybody else is getting pissed off. And some guys are better than others. I think uh, I think it was, what was it Harvelson this year when we started with him. I just like couldn't understand a word he was saying. But by the end of um, sort of a month together racing, he was, he was quite clear. But... Uh, it, 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 it can be really hard and also knowing who's who so something it sounds so childish and simple but someone will say uh, front wheel puncture and it's like okay who is it people are riding different wheels some guys are on 40s some guys are on 55s and we need to know what's your what's your what's your go to it's just not a punch or anything but like someone's saying something and you've like three times sorry I didn't catch that and they said it again didn't catch it what's your go to response time gap, your- time gap. <laughs> That's uh, uh, one minute thirty five riders, because you know after that, that if it's serious they're going to come back. So you just drop a time gap in there and gen- generally shuts them up. I think I had some directors to used to just do eat and drink. You're like, so how far is it to the top of this climb? And you're like, you're starting to panic because you really want to know the top of the climb, and you'll hear like it. Yep, three minutes to the front. You're like, God damn it, I didn't want to know that. They're all like, that's right to remember, boys, just eat and drink over the, you know. You're like, no, I know that. I'm, I, can, <laughs> I, I can actually feel my own body's needs. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. All right, what else have we got here? Aldi, what are some of the unspoken rules of the peloton that might, fans might not know about? Look, there is a simple piss. I think most people know about that. It's sort of an unspoken rule that once the break forms, there's almost like a truce and everyone wants the break to go because everyone wants that that pause in the in the race. So, you know, you might try and create a piss if you, that's beneficial to you. And the unspoken rule is that once we all sort of the break goes, might even have 20 seconds, it's clear that it's done. We all stop and have a piss whether you need to or not. It's sort of like a pause in the race reset okay break's got some time a team will control but what often happens now more often than not is people see it as an opportunity to just try and start things up again and that is like 
if you're already feeling tired, that's hell on earth because you're just like, uh-oh, here we go. And it's actually, it's quite, a, it's quite a cool thing if you're the guy who started the piss, that you've got that kind of, kind of presence. You're like, yeah, you're the first guy to take the risk of unclipping because it's quite risky. Just say you, you take the piss and it hasn't gone, then you've taken your foot out and the bunch doesn't stop. Next thing you know, you're in the cars, you're chasing and you're like, yeah, well, that didn't work. But if you're the guy that stops and everyone goes, yeah, actually, well, if Mitch is stopping, now I'm just going to stop too. You're like, yeah, that's right, boys. I control this bunch. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everybody's waiting for that guy, aren't they? It's like, okay, when's this first guy going to stop? Well, often it's the yellow jersey but or the, the leader of the race, but I've seen it happen where his presence still doesn't have enough presence and the race goes on. Probably more so back when you were racing, that was more done respectfully, I would think, than now. Yeah, but it actually got stupid at one point. I remember doing a race in Germany where one of the Gerolsteiner guys who had the yellow jersey, like 30K to go, called a piso just because there were too many attacks. And you're like, man... It's, it's 30K to go, the race is on, and like yelling at people and screaming is like, all right. I can't think. What are some other unspoken rules? Well, there's like the whole line of where you sit in the bunch. Like, you know, leader's team gets to sit. If they're leading the race, they're obviously working, so they sit first. But then often what happens is if the leading team is not working and another team, for instance, it's a sprint stage and the leading team's got a team of climbers, so they're not interested in the sprint stage, a sprinter's team will be riding. So their whole team will be lined up first behind. And the unspoken rule is the leading team then gets second position and then so on and so forth. If there's another team working, they get first and second. And it's sort of unspoken, whatever team first started riding, just for instance, there's three teams working together on the front. The first team that started riding gets first position, second team riding, second and third. And that can be a bit wishy-washy sometimes. Um, I know that for a fact because in we used that tactic in the Worlds this year in um, with Australia. Oh, last year was in Yorkshire. It was a horrible day. And we were like, we're going to ride anyway. Let's be the first team to ride so we can be first sitting there. And it was a great tactic because we were first there. We rode probably like 5 or 10K before any other team were thinking about riding. The break had only just gone and we just went straight there with Rowan Dennis. We let the break roll out, but we were first team there, which meant we were first sitting there. And yeah, another team could have tried to take it off us, but that's sort of the unspoken rule. And um, that was quite a good little tactic. That's a nice move. I mean, the unspoken rules are always for the slow bits. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it all goes out the window, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's a few unspoken rules back in the cars, but uh, as you deserve, seem to just ignore all of those and drive past everyone anyway. All right, well, let's move on. If you could change one thing about the current race culture dynamic, what would it be, Harrison? I mean, it would never happen, but like I would love it if riders couldn't get to their mobile phones until they got to the hotel. Because I feel a lot like there's not enough engagement with the race after the race because everybody hops on, headphones on, start looking at pictures of themselves or call their wife or whatever, which is fine. Obviously, you need to communicate with your loved ones and that's great, but sometimes it will be... I think it can take away from like an honest discussion on the bus um, about about the race or or just more conversation about the race. So people are learning, you know, if a young guy's there and he's listening to other people talk about what happens on the race, you know, so instead of putting your headphones on, you, 
you're talking about what's happened in the race, two guys, and then there's one young guy sat behind. He's learning just by listening. I feel like obviously everyone's knackered. People just want to get on their phones and just leave everything behind. But our team's really good. Guys aren't on the phone at dinner time. You know, we don't have one, you know, that's really nice. But that's more sort of general kind of chit chat and stuff. Sometimes it's good to have, you know, I mean, it's it's your job. It is a big focus in your life and it would be a good thing to have a bit more sort of to and fro and, and not stimulated by DS saying, hey guys, tell me about this or... I think also on that note, like maybe you weren't really getting to this point of it, but I think also your opinion gets warped then from what you read opposed to what you feel and what your teammates say. So like you were just saying then, yeah, you're distracted by you're on your phone or on your headphones on, so you're not listening to your teammates, but also you're reading or watching or looking at what happened in the race and forming your opinion from that article or whatever, or that paper result or whatever instantly. And so you never get to put your emotion from that day out. Like you said, you're listening to your teammates and you've got this emotional story, but suddenly you're in your own little world You're, and then your opinion changes from this outside source. And I think that's another point I would say is one thing I don't really love is everything is a little bit too much dictated by power, SRMs, garments, you know, like, you know, even I look, I'm very guilty of this. You justify your day on how hard it was from how much power you used opposed to trying to save energy now you're sort of searching to have a hard day if that makes sense you know like because then you can justify whatever you did because you had this tss or this hard day opposed it actually could be looked at you're actually a bit stupid you rode in the wind too much you did this you did that because you shouldn't have had that harder day you know whereas it's actually getting promoted that you know i had a 400 tss oh well done you know it's like well you shouldn't have had that you should actually be trying to search to have the lowest tss in a stage because you're saving energy you're smart you know if that can also get warped another way because then you're a soft cock but you know what i'm trying to say like i think there's too much hanging on that factor opposed to just the smartest guy wins the race or the smartest strongest guy wins the race now it's just who can just be the strong bastard you know there's that element of it now and that goes back to guys you know the way you guys are getting signed now they're not necessarily racers they're just strong guys and we'll teach them how to race later so there's there is that culture that I think is slightly changing a bit now, um, but definitely very present in the peloton at the moment. This is from Kevin. What is your favorite post Grand Tour meal? Do you know any superstition superstitious riders out there? Um, well, I'll tackle this first one. Post Grand Tour meal. Look, I think, I guess it's probably hot here now. I, maybe this is a bit warped, but I don't eat a lot of red meat on the race. I sort of bought into that more so in this team. Um, I was aware of it in Green Edge that the body takes a lot more energy to digest it. And so I'm eating more a lot fish, a lot more fish and chicken. And then when I come back, I really enjoy like a good barbecue. Just get the meat on there, a few, few cold beers, good glass of wine. That's probably my like comeback. And also there's signifiers just relaxing, being around in the in the backyard, having a barbie. So that's you don't get to do that in a, on a Grand Tour either. It's all buffets or eating in a restaurant or whatever. So just being outside, feeling very Aussie, I guess. What about superstitions? Like superstitious rise. I actually did hear this one story about Cipollini once that he had to have, you probably know this, he had to have a fresh jar of jam every morning. And if anyone knows when you open up like a can of a jar of jam, it makes that that first open 
from the seal makes that pop noise like and he had to have that pop every morning as soon as he'd had his jam from that he just throw it away fresh shower the next day is that true I mean, it sounds like a reasonable story doesn't it why not super mario man he did what he wants uh, all right terry steer what do you guys do after a grandy recovery wise um do you have any small recovery blocks how long usually and do you come back flying and are able to use that form jumping to the next level i'll tackle this one mate that's true we call it the grandy grind um by the end of a grand tour you're sort of get so fatigued but you get strong and last year after or two years ago after the year i probably had my longest time off i had two weeks completely off i did three weeks training and i went to the tour of austria it was the best form of my life i was flying and i was just like what the hell's going on here because i actually let the body soak up that grand tour that's a mistake i've made in the past you think you're recovered and then you get back into it after a week but actually it takes a long time everyone's different to let that thing, and you know, to use a sponge's analogy, to let it soak in. And then you've got this amazing sort of grind where you just like, you can hurt. And then all of a sudden you're like, ah, oh, maybe I will go across that break, bugger it. You click it down and just ride across. And that's not that happens all the time. That's that, that feeling like you can sort of do anything. It's a pretty cool feeling. Like you go through hell and you come out the other side. It's, um, it's something you know coming to the end of the last week. You're like, I'm going to do this for the form. Next one, Sir Noel. Is there a difference between indoor trainer FTP and outdoor FTP? I think, like I should know this because my coach is like a swift man. I'm pretty sure it's about 7%. Yeah, you minus 7% on indoor trainer. Like it's around something like that. Like because look, my FTP outside is 410. And so what's 7% of that? I guess it's like 30 watts maybe something around that so it's something like that less 30 watts i'm pretty sure you'd probably be able to find a better answer than me i mean i guess it depends on how like truthful you are with your weight on your uh, indoor trainer thing doesn't it that's all i know that's a big that it that is that, that is a big one and two and i think it is relative too to do an ftp test if you could be bothered on the indoor trainer is probably the best way to do it uh luke what is the best way for an under 19 to get to the pro peloton i mean i think like at under 19 is still young the best thing you can do is, is is have a picture in your like an idea in your head of as to where you want to get to to understand the, the steps that you've got to take to get there and then to focus on those little by little so you're not trying to like eat, eat the whole cake in one go and rush to being a pro or whatever you, you know you want to get to the pro peloton and then you want to do things obviously in the pro peloton, not just get there. So what are the steps you have to make to get there? Who are the people around you that you can talk to to understand what it entails? And then just try and, you know, one step at a time, make your way there. You know, unless you're a complete freak, you're not going to just leap there in one go. It's a long process and you have to just keep your eyes on the prize without getting, you know, dis- dissuaded by setbacks or whatever. I mean, yeah. Let's move on to the next one. This is an interesting question given the time. This is from Sprockick. What do you think the impact of all the COVID Zwift racing will be on real life racing after this period? I think that it's easy to confuse um, Zwift racing with just training on an ERG. And this is um, something I've been thinking about because a lot of people just see Zwift and then just assume automatically it's all about racing. But obviously you can use that platform to train as well. And it's not as simple as people 
just doing Zwift every day because they were locked inside. You had your sessions that you had to do on Zwift as opposed to Mitch, you have to do a race in the morning and a race in the evening. So the actual like um, races that have been happening, I think will have very little effect on the racing in the future. It's not like races are gonna start for two minutes, full gas and then slow down and then whoever's there. Um, but what will make a difference is how seriously or not and how well timed people have done their training through this period, which is a bigger question or subject than just the Zwift racing itself. I do, and this is maybe slightly different to the answer uh, to this question, but I just heard you say something that reminded me of it. I think I would like to see in the future these two platforms stay separate. And this is a conversation I've had recently with some other pros is they're like, oh yeah, you know, like Zwift, and I I was initially like this too. It's, it's so different, you know, the drafting elements, bullshit, you know, it's not like being on the road and, you know, you start, like you said, you start a race two minutes hard and it's not realistic. I said, well, I started understanding. I'm like, well, actually there's a, there's a e-pro and there's a road pro. They're two different things. So if you can, if you can master being a Zwift and you've done, you know, a thousand hours on there and you can school a road pro, so be it. I shouldn't be able to just jump from the road and be able to win another platform. I think they should stay separate and there should be a certain skill Yes, we can both cross across and do okay, but you shouldn't just be able to come there and go, yeah, I just won Tour of Flanders on the road last week and I'm just going to win, you know, whatever, you know, Innsbruck's Zwift race on Thursday morning because that's a different skill. And I like that fact. I like that, you know, I got I got it handed to me there. Yeah, And, and I yes, I could keep up because I'm, I'm a pro on the road and I've got some physical attributes, but when it came to the sprint, I just got schooled. I could not, I couldn't win a Swift race. So I sort of like that. And I like. I think they should just keep them separate um, and not make it more realistic to road. Yeah, I think. I, I, th- I think. Yeah, they're separate things, aren't they? All right, moving on. We've got a couple more now. A few fun questions here. Well, not the others weren't, but this is just more different. Tom, uh, this is from Josh. As a pro cyclist, you get to travel the world and race. Where have you raced that you would most likely go back and have a coffee ride? Look, hard to hard to say. Go past Italy, um, and that's one of the things I do love about doing the Giro is I always found it so funny. I'm going to these places I always saw, like, for instance, a bottle of San Pellegrino, and we're going up Mount San Pellegrino. I'm like, oh, this is where the water's from, you know? Or, like, you're in Parma, and you just see these palms and cheese factories. You're like, wow, this is like, you know, it was just sort of like a Kentucky cultural trip, you know? You just got to do some got to do some riding in between. So that's, that's what I like about it. To put it down to one specific place, too hard. It is a difficult one. I'd actually probably just go for Melbourne, honestly. Mm. You know, simple one, but you know, there's good places to go, and it's uh, yeah, it's a great place for riding and having a having a coffee. This could be a quick one from Jordan. If you could ride for any pro team, past or present, who would it be? I would go for Zed, circa 1990-1991, once Le Monde had arrived, because uh, I think they were a pretty forward-thinking team. I mean, you look at that, like their jersey went from like the black and white of Peugeot to like this kind of way out there jersey, you know. Um, and they just uh, had Greg LeMond and he had like different ideas and, you know, Robert Miller and a few other people just like, and back in the day it was so, like teams didn't think differently, you know, like it was just super Eurocentric. So for them to break the mold like that, like that was, uh, that would be cool. I look. I, I I can't go past Mape. 
You know, like obviously for the aesthetics of it, the kit, but I love the idea of what Mappe were doing back then. You know, they had like 50 guys on their roster and they were doing like, you know, the setup. They had their, you know, almost like a little amateur team coming through, a medium sort of pro team, and then their big team. It was just like this epic setup. And the guys that came out of that system, as we, you know, we know some of the best riders, you know, Fabian came out of there and the Aussie guys, Mick Rogers. You know, there's a million other guys, but it was, looked like a cool, cool outfit. I would have loved to have been on that team. Moving on, this is from Cabob. Music on training rides? Yes or no? For me, uh, it used to be a definite yes, but now it's a no because I have a young family and I just want some peace and quiet when I go outside. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a no. I just like the time of, of quiet now. I'm, yeah, I always have the headies in actually. I'm listening to a lot of potties and actually I'm doing audio books at the moment. I've always got the headies in. I, I train alone a lot though. That's why. Yeah, but like I, I tried audio books, but I can't hear them when I'm going down descents. So... You got, uh, that's true. I, I have to pause it. All big headwinds. You just got to pause yeah. it. This is from Daniel. For better or worse, what major changes do you think we might see in the sport over the next de- decade or so? I mean, the trend, the way things are going, like if I just see the margins between winning and losing getting smaller and smaller. Um, and it sounds ridiculous, but if you go back to like the 90s and you w- watch the races, like, you know, riders were much further apart. Mm. And now, now, now everyone's getting better and faster, and and like equipment's playing much more of a role than ever, you know. And then you kind of get into this sort of Formula One territory where the guys who have the best equipment are going to be the best riders, and so I, I, I see that like the margins really narrowing between teams and riders. This is from Gadero. What's your favourite Melbourne pub? I'm going to go for the Builders Arms at the moment, mm. Gertrude Street. I enjoy it down there. It's nice, good food, uh, good little spot outside. And like, you know, from there you can always dip down to Smith Street or, you know, hmm. just go straight to Revolver really, you know, if you need to. <laughs> from there, yeah, just just around the corner <laughs> of the side of the city, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go with, I've got a few up my sleeve. Um, look, I like the Union, the Union Hotel, which is down on Gore Street, just in Fitzroy there. Really classic old sort of, Little round the corner pub vibe there. Good little rooftop. But I used to like going to this place called, um, oh God, I can't believe I forgot it. Um, the John Curtain. John Curtain. It's on Ligon Street, just opposite RMIT, corner of Ligon Street and um, Victoria Street. And we used to sneak across there. Like we get like little 10 minute breaks in our uni. Be like, all right, guys, 10 minutes, come back, go and have a smoke or whatever you want to do. And I'd be like, I had a couple of mates in there. We were like, should we get a quick jug at Curtin, at JC's? And of course, we never went back. So the old JC's, we used to hit that up. It, was a, it wasn't really a classic pub or anything, but it just served a purpose. Um, and the last question here from Harry, best luft, luft in the pillow. Who's got the best luft? Historically, I reckon I'd go for Laurent Jalabert at his prime. That yeah. hat was just glued on his head. I actually heard something... And I'm going to have to break this in Talking Luft as well. I don't know if you know anything about this. I think this is an amazing fact that I didn't know and should have known. That the boys back in the day used to spray their caps with hairspray. No way. To support Luft and get rid of the collapse. And Jaja used to have it. Jalabé used to be able to keep that Luft there. And I've always thought it was about the Afro inside. And hence my favourite would be Miguel Ingerain. 
because he was like racing the pointy end of the peloton full speed and that that cat was just perfectly poised on his head but it was down i'm not sure if everyone did it but the old hairspray what a what a bloody tidbit of information that is it it makes total sense now i mean why wouldn't you of course apart from i guess if you start sweating in it the old hairspray in the eyes yeah that one on the tourmalade yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) nice (laughs) oh beautiful all right well guys i hope we've answered all your questions there we certainly got through a lot thanks tom for doing that tonight it was awesome cheers cool good stuff cheers man Well, there we have it. We couldn't get through all the questions, but we certainly had a crack at a fair few of them. And I tell you what, Southern, he's got a good way of answering those questions, I tell you. I had some answers in my head, but he had a really different perspective. And I love the way he projects the life of a director sportive. Some things I just didn't even know. What do you think about it, Lionel? Well, I've known Tom quite a long time, um, both as a, as a rider and more recently as a sports director. And what really stood out to me was when he was talking about the the transition from racing into the job as a sports director, being around the team bus and the team hotel, and, and most particularly in the team car, often driving the team car. And, and the difference between the physical stress of racing and then taking it full circle, really, and, and having the mental stress of being the sports director, having to retain all of that information. You're managing, not as he made the point, not just the riders in the team, but all of the staff as well, having to be across all of the details, making sure that logistically everything's running smoothly and, and really not just giving the riders kind of direction but also being a bit of a buffer so that that any of the kind of stresses and strains of traveling around a country on a grand tour uh, really the riders are insulated from that and what really stood out was that sensitivity that he had after the team meeting on the bus he wants to get off the bus and get out of the way let the riders get their kitted up finally and ready to go to the start line and then he's got a sort of weird hour of downtime where and the sense i got from his description of it was that just not being entirely comfortable knows he can't go over the road to the cafe and be seen having a coffee while the riders are getting ready for the race but perching on the team car bonnet not feeling comfortable not really knowing what to do with himself because he everything hinges on uh, the the four hours in the team car and, and having that mental focus and mental energy and i found that really interesting because those hours for the sports directors they're when the likes of me and my colleagues uh, the other journalists are, are approaching to sort of ask them how the race is going and you know who's doing what anyone in the team you know suffering after a crash or everyone okay you know sort of asking questions that perhaps they don't really want to give too much away and uh, just it was just interesting just to get an insight into his uh, mindset during the period of time where I might have some interaction with him at the races so I found that really interesting. It is a weird dynamic because at the end of the day one thing I've really noticed with especially friends or even ex-teammates that become directors there's also this weird dynamic of suddenly I'm got to tell you what to do. And exactly what you said, that's a sort of a weird feeling. Tom and I have sort of found a really, I'm going to speak from my side of things, a really happy medium where 
we've still been able to retain that friendship as he's my superior, my boss. And there's also these other dynamics. And I love talking to a director, especially on the podcast, or even if I get a chance to pull them aside and just ask about that life that I sort of think I know about, but I don't really know about until I speak to them about it. And again, in this podcast, he was opening up some doors. I was like, oh, yeah, right. I didn't even realize that. So... It was super interesting and especially in this time as we're sort of looking towards racing again, I'm back out on the road, I'm training and I'm starting to feel the itch. The fire is starting to go again. Racing's not far away, yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, what what is the schedule now? I mean, we, we're just right at the start of June. Racing should be back, we hope, uh, at the end of July, it looks like. Um, what? Do you have any sort of firm goals to that you can actually fix on and work towards now? Well, the first goal was I wrote it up today, straight down on a piece of paper, fat check I wrote. It's going to be a piece of paper above my scales. I haven't jumped on the scales this whole time and I'm like, it's time. Oh, it's time. I've got to get on those scales and I've got to start writing those weights down. I've got to see where I'm at. I've got to see the damage and it's time to get in the lockdown. But apart from that, I actually want to do it. You know, up until sort of like a week or so ago, I couldn't see the racing. And when I couldn't see the goalposts, I couldn't see the, the finish line. It was so hard to set these goals. But now I can sort of see it. It's a couple of months away. I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. But I've just set my own, my own goals. I'm like, in two months time, I'm racing. I don't know what it's going to be. But I've got to be at race weight and it's time to lock it down. I've got to take it from 12 beers a day, maybe down to like six and then slowly pull it back from there. But you know what? It's on. Tomorrow is the first way in. Yeah. Well, okay. So are you able to tell me what your race weight is? Can I put you on the spot and say what would be a good result when you get on the scales? All right. It's out. Here we go. It's going to be out <laughs> there in the world. All right. So I want to race at 74 and a half. If I'm at 75, I'm, I'm racing okay, but super lean's like 74 and a half. Anything under 75 is good for me. That's that's my in my mind. It's like if it says 74 something, I'm doing a good thing. I guess I'm I'm tomorrow's the official weigh in, but I, I'm guessing I'm somewhere like 77 something. I'm hoping it's not going to say 78 something because then I've got a lot of work to do. But tomorrow's the real weigh in. And, you know, I'm not going to put it up there, but you guys are going to feel feel my pain. It's it's on. <laughs> well, I wish you luck. I mean, as long as the, as long as the scales have been, you know, calibrated and, you know, they're on, an honest set of scales. Um, that's all I can say. It's going to be a it's going to be a hard slog and, and pulling the, uh, the the wine and the beer out of it is going to be a big element of it. But it's what needs to be done. And I want to have a big end of the season. I think everyone's in that mindset that. We've got two months of racing, and if we get it right, it's just two months full on, and it's going to be on. So I do want to say you've got to listen to the Talking Luft in a week's time because it is Tom Southern, and he has got an ultimate Luft hat. I have never seen something like this. So make sure you hang in for Talking Luft in a week's time. I'm going to put a photo photo up of it. He's ridiculous. This is this is too much Luft. This is the, this is this is an example of too much Luft. I'm, I'm getting uh, I'm yeah. getting in my head an image of like one of those baker's hats, you know, that stands right up completely tall. <laughs> it it shits all over that. It's it's ridiculous. So <laughs> oh, I'll look out for that. Um, have you got any idea what uh, your episode of Life in the Peloton will be in a fortnight's time or is that still a closely guarded secret? 
I'm still working on it. I am looking at trying to get into the world of Strava. And that's something that's happened a little bit after Zwift. We're all engrossed in Zwift and this Strava world's happening again now because as pros, I mean, pros are going after Strava's now because we don't have racing. So Strava's are the next best thing. And I sort of want to get into that world of Strava. I still need to find them the ultimate Strava hunter, as they're called. I'm not a hunter myself. I don't even have a Strava account. But I think it's a really interesting subject. So two weeks time, I really want to talk to a hunter out there. Um, you know, James Knox is one of those guys or, you know, even George Bennett. They're, they're taking the Stravas around where I am. So be interesting to talk to them, what drives them and the whole world of Strava. I, I feel like it's a whole world I don't know. So that could potentially be in two weeks time, the podcast. Excellent. Well, if it, whether it's in two weeks time or for a future episode, uh, I'll, I'll look forward to that one. Cheers, guys. And Hang in there. Speak to you soon. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.